Well, I hope you have your Bible with you this morning and would like to invite you to turn with me once again to the book of Judges. And this week we'll be looking at Judges chapter 8. We almost finished Judges chapter 7 last week. We left one paragraph off, so we'll actually begin reading uh, in verse 24 of chapter 7, but that's likely on the same page that you're looking for. And uh, just to give us a quick rundown of where we'd been for any of those who perhaps were not here last week. Chapter 6 of Gideon, not Gideon, of, of Judges, about Gideon, uh, is one of the more familiar of that book. In fact, uh, Gideon and Samson are probably the most well-known for the contents of the book itself. And we learned about how God had determined that he was going to save the Israelites from the hand of Midian who had oppressed them. Uh, Not by 32,000 member army that they had, but that he would reduce that uh, in the first wave down from 32,000 to 10,000. 22,000 of them went home when they were given the offer. If any of you are afraid, then you can go home. And a lot of them took them up on that. And then there was that second wave where God told Gideon to take the 10,000 remaining and to go down to the water. And he would determine for him by a test having to do with the way the men would drink their water. And 300 of those men drank their water differently than 9,700 of the others. And he said, with the 300, I'll free you from the hands of Midian. Tell the others to go home. So with less than 1% of the army he had to begin with, he is then to attack Midian that was numbered like uh, grasshoppers or the sands of the seashores that was described. Innumerable, really. And then we learned about how he went in the night, snuck into the enemy camp and listened to one of the enemy describe a dream to another. And when he described this dream of a big ball of bread rolling down the hill and smashing the tent which represents Midian. It seemed as though that dream infected the whole army with, with anxiety. Gideon went right back to his people and he said, the Lord has given us the victory. And then he described how he would do it. He handed each of the 300 men a trumpet and a jar and a torch And they were to stand on the hillside of the the valley with the enemy down below. And at the precise moment that the first watch, the guard of the enemy, was coming back into camp and the next watch was leaving, they were to break these jars, revealing the torches, which would symbolize entire companies, though they're just 300 men, and then blow the trumpets around the hillside which we talked about being uh, probably the first example of true surround sound for this uh, army in the middle. And it did just the trick. It capitalized on their anxiety and fear. And it says that God gave the victory into the hand of Gideon by making this army attack itself in the confusion of the night. And that's where we pick up in verse 24. Verse 24, this is Judges chapter 7. Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them. 
as far as Bethbara and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out and they captured the waters as far as Bethbara and also the Jordan. And they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb, and they killed Oreb on the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. And they pursued Midian and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. So we'll stop right there and we'll pray and ask the Lord for help to understand what we're reading and then move on into chapter 8. Father in heaven, as always and again, we ask for your help to understand the word that you've written, to understand the difference between our culture and theirs, to put ourselves in their place and to see what truth you are teaching us today. Be our teacher and make us your students. And we ask all this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Well, what we're going to learn today, last week was familiar territory. It's a well-known story. If you grew up in church, you saw this put before you on what some would call the flannel graph. People like to hear when I say that. At least they comment about it. I actually had some of my teachers here uh, from when I was my children's age visiting the other week. The ones that actually taught me these things with the flannel graph. But that familiar story of how God willingly, purposefully reduced the army down to just a fraction of a percentage in order to make sure that one thing happened if nothing else did. That he got the glory for the battle. And that they didn't take glory for it themselves. But then after this takes place, the first surprise attack is successful. Most of the army has killed each other, but a few of them are escaping. That's where we pick up with what we just read. And what we're going to learn today as we go through chapter 8 is that sometimes, despite a very great start, it becomes difficult to end well. That despite maybe a very bright beginning... There is the very real possibility of making shipwreck of our lives. If we fail to remember the last point that we went through last week. And that is God purposefully inserted weakness into this story. In order to demonstrate his strength. If we forget our weakness. Then things begin to change. And that's what we'll see illustrated by chapter 8. What Gideon does here. And calling up reinforcements after the first initial surprise attack is not necessarily creative. It's the same that the other judges that we've read about thus far have done. Uh, Those who responded to his backup call, uh, in addition to Ephraim, who had not been called yet, we're going to find were the very people that God dismissed from the army just a few days prior. The ones that were sent home because they were afraid or the ones that were sent home because they didn't drink their water right according to how God was choosing to test them and separate and make sure they had just one little handful of people as a result. But what did seem to take place with this call for backup even though it wasn't necessarily successful in cutting off the last of the fleeing Midianites they did result in the capture of two generals, and we learned their names, Oreb or Orev in Hebrew, and Zeev. 
And for those of you inquiring minds that want to know what those names mean, one means raven and the other means wolf. So they're able to caption, capture the raven and the wolf. And then they remove the heads from the raven and the wolf. And they bring them back over the Jordan to Gideon. So now these Ephraimites are able to get in on what is happening. And they have now some, uh, I guess you'd call them scalps to show for their, their victory. Now the last theme of the last chapter was weakness. And at this point in the story, even though it's the last part of chapter 7, it, we almost have to ask the question, had Gideon perhaps forgotten the point of God's purposefully weakening his army? Because the first thing he does after the initial surprise attack is call for reinforcements. Which happened to be the same people that God purposefully told, we don't need you for this. I'm going to do it in such a way that I'm going to receive the glory and no one else. So it's precisely at the point that Gideon calls for the reinforcements that things begin to get complicated. Because really, if we're true to pattern of the things we've studied so far in chapter 1 and 2 and 3 and 4 and 5, there's this cycle that happens. And somewhere about verse 24, we would expect that there's this period of, of uh, rest. The people who had put them in bondage are now gone. So they live happy for a while until the judge dies. And then they go right back into the same problems they had to begin with. But we don't see that here. In fact, it seems like the story just can't find a place to land. You ever heard anybody say that? Land the plane. Wrap this up. But this seems to just kind of circle for a while with these extra stories that take place that don't really seem to fit the agenda that God had laid out for them. As if that Gideon has something he wants to accomplish on the side. So when we get to verse 8, we see the first surprise that we're not really expecting as the reader. Then the men of Ephraim said to him, What is this that you have done to us, not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. He said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abiezer? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Orv and Zeev. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. So when we get to chapter 8, we find out that Ephraim is, is torqued. They're angry because they weren't invited to the fight to begin with. They were invited to the fight after it begun. In fact, actually the part of the fight where part of the enemy is escaping and fleeing through their own territory. So they're the people to call to say, hey, they're coming your way. We're after them. You cut them off and then everything will be great. Well, they didn't like this and they interpret it as a snub. You didn't want us to start with until it got out of hand and then you need us. And really, Ephraim is a wealthy tribe and a very proud tribe. And really what they wanted was in on what was happening. They want their name on the monument somewhere. They want part of the credit. Not just a sword for the Lord and a sword for Gideon, but a sword for Ephraim of the day after. They want in on this, so they're angry. Who was supposed to get the credit? God was supposed to get the credit. So now you've got Gideon with some credit, 300 men with some credit, and Ephraim who wants some credit too. But it seems as if things are, 
are not going as God had planned. Now Gideon, to his credit, does display quite a diplomatic set of skills there and seems to smooth it over with this group. And uh, if reading through there, you get to the part where it says, Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the flattering, uh, or rather than the grape harvest of uh, Abbey Ezer? That might be a part where you go, uh, What's that you said? Gleaning and gathering and grapes and harvest and Ephraim and Abbey Ezer. What he's saying has to do with something that the Israelites would have known about and we learn about when we get to the next book in the book of Ruth. She would glean in the corners of the field. And the landowners, as Hebrews, Israelites, were not supposed to glean the corners. They would round those off. So that the poor folks could get something in the corners. They would glean. That's what the poor were to do. So he's saying the scraps that are left over, the corner, the gleaning of Ephraim, that's your tribe, is bigger and better than the whole harvest as far as my clan from Abbey Ezer. You've got all the good stuff. And really what you got out of this whole thing was two heads of two generals. That's more than we got. So what have we done in competition with you? You're the ones who everyone will be talking about. When they read the headlines, Damar, your name will be there too. And they'll recognize you, not us. So everything's cool. So he flatters their egos. And he gets out of this. But at the same time, he kind of raises some questions in the way he deals with these folks. These aren't the enemy. These are... These are descendants of, of Israel from the tribe of Ephraim. These are Hebrews. So why did he use the generic word for God here? He didn't use Yahweh as had been used. He used just the God you could use for any old God. That's kind of strange. It's, it, it doesn't fit the rest of the pattern. Why doesn't he mention anything about his calling by Yahweh? You'd think he'd be proud of all the fleecing tests. And then what happened the night before? And why wouldn't he, to perhaps not save his own reputation, but God's, include the information on how the army was reduced purposely by God's plan? None of that is said here. So the arguments are good as far as what, what Gideon is doing, but they're, they're not theological arguments. They're philosophical arguments. Now they worked. They got him off their back. But there's no teaching. There's no correction being done here. Gideon is not giving any of the credit where the credit is due. The glory is absolutely absent in what he says. Look at verse 4. And I'll make some explanation as we move through. This is a bigger piece of the text here. Gideon came to the Jordan. That's the river. And crossed over. So he's crossing over from the big chunk of land that is Israel's over into a smaller chunk, but it's still within the bounds of the promised land, as it were, but closer to the enemy. He and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing, so they'd been at this for some time. Verse 5, so he said to the men of Succoth, that's a town on the other side of the river, please give me loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted, and I am pursuing after Ziva and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. These aren't generals. These are kings. So these are more important. Uh, if you've got your, your deck of cards. I don't know if any of you remember that. After Desert Storm there was a deck of playing cards that our, our army boys had. And on each of the faces were the, were the leaders of the army of Iran and Iraq. 
And uh, all the different players are there. And, of course, the aces are most important, right? He's got a couple of aces here. These are the kings. So he's after them. They're more important than uh, raven and wolf, right? Verse 6, the officials of Succoth said, Are the hands of Ziva and Zalmunna already in your hand that we should give bread to your army? So is this a done deal, Gideon? Or is this something you're hoping to accomplish? So Gideon said, Well then, when the Lord has given Ziva and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. Verse 8, from there he went up to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered. Verse 9, and he said to the men of Penuel, when I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. That doesn't really sound like a peaceful return, does it? My peace will involve violence. Now, if you notice, the 300 are still with Gideon here. Even though the fords have been seized, we already read about that. Raven and wolf are dead. Ephraim took care of that. All the others who were called up have gone home. It's just Gideon and 300 that are left. But they're exhausted and they're pursuing and look more and more like Gideon's private militia. These are the ones that we couldn't tell last week what reason God was using to choose that 300. Was it because they were the, the uh, SEAL Team 6? And they were the best, and we could count on them for the victory, or maybe they were normal as anyone else. We don't know, but God had promised the victory, and that's what they got. So God was able to deliver on his promise. But what is Gideon doing with them now? It seems all that is over, so what's left to be done? Well, again, with these 300 men, and again, another uh, interesting thing to think about. Um, these men have not actually been battle-tested. They didn't do any fighting. They just stood on the top of the hill while the army took care of itself. So this is like an undefeated team who's never won a game, if that's possible. And they're with Gideon here, and we have no idea how this is going to go. Another thing that's different between the previous chapters and this, Gideon seemed to have no trouble before rallying troops 32,000 men for God only to leave him with 300 but he didn't have any trouble gathering them because the glory had clothed Gideon the the spirit of the Lord but now he can't even make a deal with his own people just maybe for some food and what's interesting still is this man that we've known to be timid and need reassurance over and over again at the slightest a hint of refusal from these two towns about five miles apart from each other. That diplomacy that he used with Ephraim is gone now. And he threatens or promises violence on his return if he's able to do what he said he was going to do. This is completely uncharacteristic of Gideon and worrying really because if this was the enemy, it'd be one thing, but these are his brothers. They are Israelites. To talk that way to your own people sounds as if there's something different about Gideon. And as reading through this, the reader, we don't know what it is yet. It's being withheld from us. So let's continue in verse 10. Now Ziva and Zalmunna, 
Ziva there. The B is actually a V. I thought about that uh, Israeli girl in that show some of y'all watch, right? Some of you are nodding. Yeah, that's not her. This is a guy. Um, They were in Karkor. Where is Karkor? A hundred miles east of the Dead Sea. Now, they don't have tanks. They don't have Hummers. They cover this distance on foot. This takes a while. They're a long way from home now. And the army of about 15,000 men, all who were left of the army of the people of the east, for there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. That was from the night with the 300. And Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers east of Nobah and Yogebah and attacked the army, for the army felt secure. So another surprise attack. And Ziva and Zalmunna fled, and he pursued after them and captured the two kings of Midian, Ziva and Zalmunna. The guy, I get, wonder if he gets extra credit for using their names over and over and over again. But it says here, and this is important, and he, that's Gideon, threw all the army into a panic. Another thing that's different. We just read in the previous chapter that God threw the enemy of Midian into a panic, and each man joined his sword against the other. In this case, the surprise attack is Gideon, and he's the one who set them into a panic. Verse 13, Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Herez, and he captured a young man of Succoth and questioned him, and he wrote down for him the officials and elders of Succoth, 77 men. Skip down to verse 16, And he took the elders of the city, And he took thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them taught the men of Succoth a lesson. And he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. Again, this is where it starts to just kind of get real. This isn't lightening up, it's getting worse. And here you have Hebrews, or a Hebrew, killing other Hebrews. And uh, it'd be reasonable if this was under declaration of war, and this is the enemy, which is what God had told them to do. But they're his fellow Israelites. He delivers on his threats with ruthless, ruthlessness, not unlike the pagan behavior of his enemies. So here we have a severe man delivering severe measures. Doesn't seem like Gideon at all. The next four verses deliver the climax. Uh, to this brutal operation. And notice, we're going to read four verses here. The word killing is in each verse, as if that's the word to focus on and the brutality that comes along with it. Look at verse 18. And he said to Ziva and Zalmunna, Where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? They answered, As you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. Verse 19, and he said, they were my brothers, the son of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So that's what it's all about. These men killed his brothers. And not just his kin, his brothers of his mother. That's his own family. And it was more than one. Almost sounds like it was more than two or three. It might have been many. But they'd killed them and they're dead. 
Gideon is on a personal vendetta to finish business with the man who had killed members of his family at some point prior. This is information that we didn't have in chapter 6 or chapter 7. When he's threshing wheat in a wine press, hiding from the Midianites, the least of his clan and family, why in the world would you choose me? Had no idea he's got this background in his history. But that's exactly what had happened. Now the dialogue that follows here is uh, that of an epic execution. You've seen these things in movies before. There's usually questioning, and then there's an answer, and then there's action as the retributive justice to the, the question asked and it answered in the positive. Yes, they're guilty. They've got it coming and they deserve it. And that's what goes on here. Now, to ask where his dead brothers were was just an elegant way to erase any notion that these men might have of, of escaping with their lives. As if to say, if my brothers were alive, so would you be. But since they're dead, you're dead too. And all of that is just to make this, it seems, more dramatic. And whether or not what they say in response was intended as flattery or a slight, it's hard to tell. We just don't have that much with the words that were given. On one hand, you might think that they're saying, look, they look like you did. Like sons of a king. And we're sorry. Or it might mean, yeah... They're trophies just like you would have been. Sons of a king. Not the king, but sons of the king. So it, it, it's hard to tell. But what they say seems to add a little bit of, to the story. And gives us the inkling that there might have been some type of understanding of royalty with this family that Gideon's part of, including his father, who happened to have the grove that Gideon cut down which was the place where everyone came to worship Baal. So maybe this has more to do with Baal worship and kingdoms and kings and who's in charge and clan heads or members than it does with Yahweh. That at least seems what's going on. Hard to tell if it's flattery or slight. But this is not the type of thing, just to pause for a minute before we get to the next two verses, that happens in the heat of battle, does it? This is the cold-blooded type of killing that happens after a battle when everything is uh, swept up and all the last little skirmishes, fires are put out. This is what happens when you've got a man with unchallengeable power who decides he's going to take care of something in his past. And it seems there's no one to stop him as he settles the score. And the question I want to interject here is, for whose glory? Yahweh's or his own? What is driving him to go to these lengths with these 300 men a hundred miles away? Treat his own brother so mercilessly in these two towns. Well, there's one more surprise in this passage, and it's not a pleasant one. And that takes place in verse 20. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, Rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid. 
because he was still a young man. Then Ziva and Zalmunna said, Rise yourself and fall upon us, for as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Ziva and Zalmunna and took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. So it's almost like the, the author here is taking our focus from the supposed hero, which is Gideon, then to the enemy, these two men that have it coming. And then it rests on Gideon's oldest son. And for any man in this room who can remember back, perhaps, as a younger man when called upon in front of other people to do something you weren't ready to do yet. And it might bring back some of the terror that, that was accompanied with such a notion. And perhaps the embarrassment that comes after it. And it seems that these men, um, defiant to the end, are willing to capitalize on that embarrassment and then taunt Gideon. Hey, the man is as his strength is. Why don't you get up and fall on us yourself? Show your son what he doesn't have the guts to do. And that's how that part of the story ends. And it's quite dramatic, but... If you just were to take this and line it up with the previous chapters. The one who reminds us of Gideon in this story is not Gideon, but his son. That's the way Gideon used to be. Before he had a stomach for violence. The Gideon as he was, but this Gideon as he is, we don't know him. And I'm not so sure we like him. And there's one conspicuously silent voice in this whole chapter. And that's his Lord. Who hasn't said anything. And he hasn't said anything to him. And you're wondering why in the world would the author add chapter 8 to ruin our idea of this man Gideon. He was good Sunday school material until we got to the end and learned that he ruined his life. Why in the world would we even include this? We just lost a hero in all this. And you wonder, Paul, I hope... I don't know if we've got anyone named Gideon in here or you know anyone that's named Gideon. But it, it's almost like some of these other characters. They're known for part of the story, but the other part, hmm, not so much. This man's life does not end well. And when you get to verse 22, it begins a, another section of the narrative and it goes from brutal to bizarre. The bloodshed's over here for now. Gideon's back home and when he gets home... The people in his town give him a hero's welcome and this offer that it seems he wants to refuse, but in reality we, we see that he probably doesn't. And that's the offer of kingship, a dynasty with him and his son and his grandsons. Verse 22, then the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also. For look at this, you have saved us from the hand of Midian. That's the precise thing God meant to avoid by the way in which he worked with Gideon through the strength of Gideon's weakness. But it hasn't worked. And what's more troubling than that is that Gideon does very little to change any of that. Look how he answers. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you. And my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Because Gideon knows better. And that's what you say. But he didn't go as far as to say, oh, you've got that wrong. It was God who saved you, not me. And that's why I won't rule over you and why he will. 
It's basically like, no, no, that's God's job, not mine. But uh, I've got something I want to ask you while you're at it. And that's what we see in verse 24. Let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil. And they answered, we will willingly give them. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. Verse 27, And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah, and all Israel whored after it. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. That is Midian. They're gone. We'll see them. And the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. That's usually the ending of the book in Judges, but still more. Look at verse 29. Jerubbabel, that was his nickname, which meant Baal, contend for yourself. But that's Gideon. The son of Joash went and lived in his own house. Most people do, don't they? Uh, Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. That's uh, different. Seventy sons. Don't know how many wives it takes to have seventy sons, but um, that's the story. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash's father at Ophrah of the Abizarites. Now we get to the end, verse 33. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and, here's that word again, hoard after the Baals and made Baal Barith their god. What's incredibly awful about that specific name of Baal, it means Baal of the covenant. These are covenant people of Yahweh. They, they're now making, have made and called this god the god they're in covenant with. The people did not remember the Lord their god who delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. Now for the first time in this book, we actually see the slide into apostasy before the judge actually dies. Because it was the judge Gideon who actually got that ball rolling. I'll say, how did he do that? I kind of missed that in, the, in that last portion of the passage. Well, he said he didn't want to be king. But then he starts acting an awful lot like a king. Let me pull these out. We won't go back in here. But the contents of what we just read include at least these things. His requesting that each man give him gold from his spoils of war amounts to a symbolic gesture of submission, kind of like a tax. And if you were to take the 1,700 shekels worth and weigh them out, the low estimate's about 43 pounds. The high estimate's about 49. We'll go with the low one. 43 pounds of gold at $1,500 and some change. Today's exchange rate amounts to uh, just over a million dollars. That's a pretty good bonus for uh, whatever he considered worthy of it. Kind of kingly. Uh, he kept the other king's symbols of royalty. Talked about the... Uh, the crescents around the necks of the camels from the two that he killed, the pendants, the neck bands, and the amulets. All of these were Canaanite, and all of them had to do with Baal worship. Why does he need that? Tear that stuff up, throw it away, burn it, do something else with it, but don't keep it. Well, he's kept it. 
He also made and set up an ephod. And that's what he took all this gold and turned it into, except for those robes and pennants and neckbands and amulets. And he set it up in his hometown, and it became not only a snare to him, but an idol of worship for the whole nation. Now, we know what an ephod is as far as the high priest and going back into the tabernacle and later the temple. And it had all the stones on the front of it. It was worn by the high priest. The 12 stones represent the 12 tribes. And then on the shoulders were the Urim and the Thurim. And what that was supposed to be was for help and guidance in determining the direction of God. We hear that David used it, but that was kind of an exception. This was basically with Moses and with Joshua, but this seems to be similar but different. And some of the commentators taking notes out of other sources describing the pagan worship of, of, of Baal, they often had a lot of these coats and garments that they would use for warfare or ceremony. But when they weren't using them, they put them over the actual image of their god, Baal. And that's where it would sit. And you're saying, why in the world would Gideon, Gideon even near something that was so similar to Canaanite practices? Well, it's like he's mixing the two. It's like he got real used to being the one who God was speaking to, and he could tell everybody else how it was going to happen. And now he's doing quite the same thing. Well, we're going to use this effort as a way to get God's direction. And we'll set it up kind of like the other neighbors do when they worship their Baal. That's what seems to be happening. Then he established his hometown as the capital city, which is what kings do. Remember, this was, a, this was out in the sticks, but now it's the capital. And that makes sense that he would live in his own house, right? You know how some governors, are, uh, they choose rather than the mansion, they stay in their own house if it's close enough and it works out? Well, that, that's kind of what's happening here. Then it says he took a large harem and fathered 70 sons. I don't think too many people actually get around to doing that. But when you're leaving a line of heirs, the more sons you've got, the more protection you have. And then this is the dead giveaway to me. That one son that he had of the concubine, which was not supposed to happen. Hebrews weren't supposed to intermarry. She's from Shechem, and that's Canaanite. Named his son Abimelech. You want to guess what Abimelech means? My dad is the king. And it happens to be the boy who's actually from the concubine. As if maybe he needed that little extra for people who might mix him up with anybody else. Now how do you suppose a kid grows up with a name like that? That's obnoxious enough to say, my daddy's better than your daddy. But to be named my daddy's better than your daddy... When we get to chapter 9, you're going to see what happens because this guy's the one who's going to take charge. And if you think the brutality of Gideon was something we can't understand, you haven't seen anything yet. This man's going to execute all the other brothers before he ever gets started. But to look at all this, it doesn't at all look like Gideon. So what happened and what went wrong? From last week... We learned that God often weakens us before He uses us. And we also learned that one of the worst things that can happen to a child of God is to forget his or her weakness. Because that's what forces them to depend on God. 
We tied this in with communion last week as a perfect reminder of our weakness in Christ. That without the death and burial of another man who happened to be God in our place, because we couldn't do it, we'd have no hope of ever having standing before God. It's by grace that we're saved, not by our works. No one can boast about it. It's weakness that is our strength as Christians. But this is, this is backwards. So if the theme of chapter 6 and most of 7 is weakness, the theme of chapter 8 is strength. But it's the wrong type of strength. It's the type of strength that happens in the absence of an understanding of your weakness before God. We also talked about how we have a much more difficult time facing the test of prosperity than the test of adversity. Most Christians do pretty good in the test of adversity. They know what to do. They start reading their Bibles more. They ask others to speak into their situation. And through God's glory, they come out on the other side. Perhaps with a lot of good lessons to show for it. But in this case, the opposite, that test of prosperity, a lot of Christians just blow it. Because we forget, like the Israelites did, where the glory goes. So what do we have to learn from this? Where do we fit in the 8th chapter of Judges? Where can we see ourselves as part of the Bible here? Two points, and really it's not two. It's just two points where they're the opposites of each other. So it's really one point. But I'll give it to you in two halves. How about that? Number one, weakness is far more likely to produce dependence on God than reliance on self. And that's from the previous two chapters. God spoke to Gideon when he was weak. Gideon listened. Gideon talked to God, asking for help over and over. And God answered again and again in the first two chapters. God used Gideon in a mighty way, but not after purposefully weakening his resources. But then somewhere before the end of chapter 7, things begin to change. If you were to chart this on a graph, you've got Gideon at chapter 6 down here and God up here. And as you move toward chapter 8, it seems like Gideon's rising and God's falling. And by the time you get there, it's, it's made an X. They've inverted. Everything from the first wave is opposite from the second wave in chapter 8. So here's the other half of that point. Strength is far more likely to produce reliance on self than dependence on God. That's what we learn from Judges chapter 8. We don't see the voice of God at all in chapter 8. God is conspicuously silent. Neither do we see Gideon asking the Lord for guidance. He's got all that taken care of. I still believe that it's chapter 7 verse 2 that explains the transition between all this. If you want to turn back to it, just look at... You, you remember it. We said it many times then. I've already said it today. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Verse 3, he says, Now proclaim that I want some of them to go home. So, in that transition, it seems as if God is, is getting Gideon right where he needs him. And if you notice there, that last shot in the arm that God gives Gideon, when he tells him to go to the enemy's camp and listen to their dreams, you'll learn they're afraid. 
And that'll build your confidence. And tomorrow we win the victory. Actually, it happened that night. That's where you see something change because Gideon didn't ask for that reassurance. And then the first thing that sounds a little bit off, just going along and I'm getting to the point here. We probably read right over it last week when we were going through it. What did Gideon say? First he told his people what to do. Here's how to work. And then when they got there on the edge of the, of the valley and all the, the enemies down here, what did he say to initiate the whole thing? A sword for the Lord and for who? For Gideon. Almost as if that's the way it should sound. I mean, Gideon's part of this thing too, right? And maybe it would have been fine if that's where it stayed. In the memories of God's delivery miraculously gave the Midianites into their hand. But that seems to be where things changed. We can condense this thinking into really one word. And we've been saying it since our opening hymn this morning. It's glory. That's the issue. Who gets it and who deserves it? In weakness we give God the glory. In strength we tend to keep it for ourselves. And here's the one thing that you might want to write down, which I, I tried my best to figure out how to explain Gideon's problem. I think at some point Gideon stopped being afraid for God's glory. Because even though he was weak and afraid, it was for God's glory, not his. All those testing wasn't for his own hide, I don't think. But then he began to be afraid for his own glory. And your own glory, you'll have to win that for yourself. God shares His glory with no one. If it's your glory you're interested in, you'll have to fight for it. You'll have to run over someone else for it. You'll have to beat them to it before they get it before you. And then you'll have to hold on to it at all costs. You'll, you'll actually use up the resources of others to get there. If it takes 100 miles and 300 men to go make sure that you live the rest of your life as the one who took care of, the one who insulted you. And stole your glory. So at some point, Gideon stopped being afraid for God's glory and began to be afraid for his own. And this might not sting as bad if we didn't know a little bit of Gideon inside us. This stuff makes sense because we've seen this before. And we know how it feels. Especially when we think we're owed something and we're not getting it. Most of us know the struggle to make our behavior as good as our theology, but it usually doesn't measure up. It's always a danger after being used of God in some way. We mouth humility, but we usually practice pride because we want the glory. And I think in this story, maybe more than others, it's unfortunate that we inadvertently keep a lot of these Bible stories at arm's length because they got weird names and weird customs and they bow down to weird, goofy images, but really it's not much different than what we do. And what this does is really similar to the story of Aaron, Moses' own brother, who made what out of all their golden earrings while he was up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments? A golden calf? And as a kid, I thought, why in the world would they do the stupidest thing you could think of? They just were brought out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, God couldn't have demonstrated himself any bigger. And then they're hand-carving their rule book for them on top of the mountain. And the people decide, okay, 
We're going to have a contest and the dumbest idea wins. That's what I used to think when I was little. But the older I get, I don't think it's so stupid. I think really all they wanted was just to be part of it. Because Moses is up there and we don't know what he's doing. But this is our God and we've been through it too. All we want is something to lay eyes on or put our hands on. We'll make it ourselves and we'll have a big celebration and we'll all be part of it. That's what I think they wanted. Just to mix in a little of themselves with what God had said. Don't you get anywhere near this mountain. If you do, you're dead. And when Moses came down, his hair was all white. Remember? Well, he didn't get it before he threw the Ten Commandments and ground that idol up and made him drink it. But I don't think they were so stupid. I think they were actually smart. But I think they were fallen. And I think they, like us, want to be part of the story. And don't ever think we wouldn't do that to a church too. Or want to be part of the church where it's going on. Where we get a bigger part. Or where the music makes us feel better. Or whatever else other than God's glory. We want to steal the glory every turn. Every day of our lives it's a glory war. Even if it's between little brothers and sisters in my own house. I get to watch it every day. Or me. You know, sometimes I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm dad. I remember dad talking in terms of how he was the king of... Uh, 1705 Ringgold Road. Well, I'm the king of 2121 Maysfield Lane here in Ballantyne. That's wrong. I'm not. But I get this goofy idea sometimes that that place revolves around me. It's, it's a glory war. At work, at home, in the Sunday school class, wherever. Go back to the sandbox. That's where it starts. It's a glory war question is who gets it because only one person deserves it and the reason why he deserves it's not unlike revelation remember why is he worthy to open the scrolls of judgment because he was the lamb that was slain he took our spot the worst that God has ever unleashed on this planet wasn't on the backs of his creation but on the back of his son in their place he's the one that's worthy so with that said, and that is enough, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for a hard-to-hear study about a man who looked promising, hero-like, one we'd name our children after and hope he, they look like him. But it all went wrong because there was confusion as to who gets the glory. Lord, save us from that. Save us from ourselves. Keep us weak if necessary. So we'll know where to look, who to thank, who to trust, and who to tell others about. Thank you for our study in your word. Seal it to our hearts. May we understand and may we obey. We ask all this in your name. Amen.